And it's, yes, again, good morning. Um, it's really nice to see everyone, especially on a holiday. Um, you never know if it's going to be just a few of us here. Uh, not that that's a problem. Um, but other than that, I, I mean, like on Thanksgiving, it's easy to kind of talk about gratitude and stuff. But other than that, that's my Easter mention for today. I don't think this has any. I tried to think of how Easter could relate to the topic that I wanted to talk about, but I am not that clever. So, um, yeah, so today, um, my the talk that I wanted to give today um, mostly kind of orbits around a short poem. Um, but I think rather than start with that, I think I want to meander around my mind a little bit before we get to that. Um, yeah, so I always am thinking a lot about my relationship to Dharma talks and my, um, the role of Dharma talks in my own practice um, when I'm giving them. Um, and I always kind of... So it always ends up, I kind of explain then in this time, you know, it's almost as predictable as the good mornings and the thank you everyone for coming is me kind of talking about like giving you the updates on my, how I feel about giving Dharma talks. Um, and kind of this reiteration of this idea of Oan Dharma talks being very personal, um, this strong uh, sense of kind of this horizontal kind of Dharma friendship sort of um, relationship, which is something that I really like about Oan. Um, and I, and then in my Dharma talks, that's usually some sort of conflict that I'm thinking of um, in my practice. And then I kind of go back and forth on it a little bit. And then towards the end, I don't really necessarily get anywhere. And then it just kind of ends. Um, and so, I wanted to say that because I do think this is also one of those. So you can see you can see that pattern then as as I'm talking, um, and then maybe maybe through awareness of that, it'll it's a little less awkward. Um, but really, the purpose of a Dharma talk is something that I, I was thinking about this week, um, and the and kind of this pressure that I think people that come and sit in this seat put on themselves to be some sort of sage or something, which is really not at all, I, don't, I think, how anyone doing this sees themselves. Um, but I, this idea of, um, and I hear this a lot, I listen to some Dharma talks from the San Francisco Zen Center, and um, they always kind of reiterate this idea of a Dharma talk being, really the sole purpose of a Dharma talk being encouragement for your practice, encouragement for sitting, encouraging myself to sit more, encouraging other people to sit and, and, and practice wholeheartedly, um, and that's something that I can get behind a lot easier. It's something that's a, it's something that, um, yeah, it's something that I think is a bit easier for me and other people to kind of um, talk about. And so I like to include that just because I think it's good when people kind of offer to give Dharma talks. And um, yeah, so today I think it's a little bit of all of that above. Um, so I'm 30 years old now. And I've been kind of through this big transitional year of my life where a lot of things have happened. Um, but it's not just me. I see a lot of my friends, a lot of people that I know here in State College, um, a lot of friends from home, a lot of people. Uh, you know, there's this whole kind of 
it just seems like there's some themes of this kind of mid twenties, early up to early thirties kind of period of of life, uh, and I just keep hearing these similar stories from my friends over and over, um, and I've been thinking about that um, and 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 what my practice kind of tells me about that, um, since a lot of the ideas in in practice aren't necessarily kind of what you know young adults are talking about or putting their efforts towards um, a lot in life. Um, and so I'm always thinking about, yeah, so what kind of with these themes, where my practice fits in and, and, and being a young adult, it's this interesting place in life where it's like, I've put in some work, I've accomplished some things, I've built reputations in certain places where, where I'm expected to, um, I've made some choices, I've learned some things, and now I'm kind of starting to do what society expects from me, what society needs from me, um, and what I have to give to, to that. Um, and that's, I think, where a lot of people in this culture, in this kind of similar um, situation with me, that kind of shares a lot of these things. And so some of the things I've noticed, um, first, this conflict of kind of this these career choices and changes. I don't think any of this is young adulthood stuff either. I think this is stuff that spans any age. Um, I'm just noticing it a lot lately with me and my friends. Um, yeah, so there's this really strong career focus I see a lot of, like this really strong attainment goal focus. Probably a lot of it is because I've been in college for ever now, um, after undergrad, and now I'm in my second grad degree, so it's just, I've just been in college for a long, long time, and so I'm sure that that kind of affects the people I'm around and the um, attitudes of kind of what people's goals are and stuff. But yeah, but there is this, a lot of planning, a lot of career focus, a lot of study, a lot of um, kind of selling yourself as a scientist or as a, you know, whatever you're kind of at. And I'm finished, I'm towards the end of my PhD now, so it's kind of that, it's that I'm kind of putting, to get, putting together this picture of like who I am as, as a scientist. And of course, that sort of identity building process um, Practice has a lot to say about that. There's a lot to look at um, in that process. Um, I also see at this age, again, in all other ages, a lot of um, people examining kind of their relationship choices, I think. And not, not just in terms of significant others, but um, the, all, the, just the people that people spend their time with, um, people's relationships with their family, um, even kind of people making at at my age personal decisions about whether or not to have a family, how large of a family, and when. There's a lot of planning kind of that I'm hearing going into um, that sort of kind of situation, um, and a lot of ends of relationships. I've kind of seen my at this age um, with all my friends. I've seen this first round of divorces. Um, the first round of kind of a lot of these stable couples, people will be dating through college, they'll move away, they'll live together with them for a year or two, and then it's like, wow, this isn't college anymore. And, um, and, and I, so, I've, so there's kind of this wave of a lot of relationships ending. Um, and I think even deeper than that, uh, just kind of coming to terms with kind of who I am and where I'm at in my life, um, you know, kind of 
and I think every, again everyone feels like this. We're kind of old enough that I've been through a few rounds of these complications in life, but young enough that I haven't necessarily learned enough from that to not, in some respect, repeat them. But again, I think people are kind of um, experiencing that often. Um, but yeah, I think that a lot of these sorts of themes come back to some really basic questions that come up in Zen a lot. So I think that practice has a ton to say about this sort of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of questions here about who am I? Who do I want to be? Um, what am I doing? What am I doing with my life? Um, there's a lot of that sort of stuff. How should I be doing the things that I'm doing in my life? Um, what matters to me? What do I want my life to be about? Um, you know, so again, it's stuff that everyone's thinking about, but I just think that it seems like a lot of my 30-year-old friends are just kind of you know, starting their careers, and this, there's this, it, it's pulling this extra focus to these questions um, as people try to define who they are and what they want. Um, or maybe I'm just projecting, but I don't, I don't know. So, um, I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, that kind of those questions, those those the way that we kind of wobble and um, and and ask ourselves a lot of those questions and agonize over a lot of those questions a lot. As I see myself kind of start heading towards a place in my life where I need to start making life decisions and think about, I need to finally get a real job. I need to find that and figure out how that's going to work. Um, so there's kind of this return to a lot of these questions. Um, and when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about um, something related to kind of this, uh, my Jukai experience. Um, so Jukai is the lay ordination um, process, which we have a Sangha member now who's studying for that. Um, and I had a Jukai with also uh, Joshin, my husband, and also Jireen, who was coming here a lot at the time. I think most of us know Jireen, but she's been living out of town for quite some time now. Um, but part of the process is you sew this raksu, which is like a Zen bib um, that has um, there's this pattern of um, kind of, there's stories about it representing this rice field. Um, there's, this, there's a larger okesa that, that um, now we're working on um, sewing for um, priest training and um, Mado is sewing another one as well. And yeah, so kind of this pattern of traditional rice field pattern that people have been sewing for a long time. The Japanese monks would make smaller versions of this to kind of still wear the Buddha's robe when they are doing tasks and um, working around the monastery. There's a lot of work to be done around the monastery. Um, and this is a lot more I mean, I don't want to use the word convenient uh, for them to wear, but it's a lot easier in that way. And so traditionally then, uh, for, the, for Jukai, we still sew this. And I actually didn't sew this one. This is, Matt made this, but it got, they got switched in the process. Um, and so he has mine. And he, he put a lot of Matt precision in this. And, and, and his is a lot more uh, like me, which is not like that. So I'm, I, I don't know how he feels about that. Um, but I think mine looks mostly like this. Um, and so, yeah, and so, but the one thing about the Raksu that is that on the back, uh, there's 
usually kind of an inscription. And so Mado had chosen an inscription on the back. And I, this, this is kind of what I was thinking about uh, today when I was thinking about all of this stuff. And so there's kind of some stamps with some um, kind of older Chinese seal script um, stuff here. I think this is Buddha Dharma Sangha, if I'm correct. Pardon? I think this is Buddha Dharma Sangha, somehow a refuge seal script in here. Um, and then there's an inscription. And mine says, um, and Mado wrote this on here, says, The way, a traceless stream and cloud life, of these mountains which shall be your home. And, um, yeah, and everyone has a different inscription on there. And so one day I was reading this book, which is the Penguin Book of Zen Poetry, um, and I came across a poem, this poem, <laughs> Um, by a Zen master called uh, Manan Eshu. Um, he was a, a Zen master from, actually look that up. I did a little small amount of research for this, which is not necessarily my norm for a Dharma talk. Because um, I was wondering how old this was. Um, it says he's from the Edo period, which is kind of the turn of the century, late 16th century, early 17th century. Um, and in his life, he, similar to Dogen, had kind of seen what he felt was this trajectory of Zen away from, um, away from kind of what he thought was the core of what the values of Zen really were. Um, similar to Dogen, kind of this idea of wanting to kind of re reclaim some of and, and kind of reform the, the system of Zen in Japan. But unlike Dogen, um, Menon didn't have the kind of social status and influence to actually cause that change. Um, and so we say Dogen's name in, the, um, in our opening ceremony, but I guess his name wouldn't come up in the list unless we were reading all, all of the ancestors. And so this poem then, um, very short, was written by him, and it'll sound very familiar to this. Um, and he says, Unfettered at last, a traveling monk, I pass the old Zen barrier. Mine is a traceless stream and cloud life of these mountains which shall be my home. So, and I, since this has been written on something that's on me a lot when I'm in, when I'm practicing, when I'm sitting, I've thought about that a lot. Um, I thought about kind of what this means a lot. And so, yeah, so the start of it isn't as much on here. So he starts saying, unfettered at last, a traveling monk, I pass the old Zen barrier. I'm just kind of describing himself. And I've read some things where this kind of this old Zen barrier, kind of this classic idea of um, passing the old Zen barrier as some sort of realization, like some sort of, so this is kind of, this, this poem is then kind of a statement of, 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 of his enlightenment experience, kind of a statement of his realization at the, at the time. And so then after saying that, he goes on to say, mine is a traceless stream in cloud life, um, which I think um, also makes a lot of sense in this sense then. We think a lot about these ideas of kind of streams curving and water moving in its in direction. There's a lot of um, kind of water flowing imagery in, in Taoist and Zen thought. 
um, traceless stream in cloud. This idea also, the clouds come up a lot when we talk about meditation. Um, clouds like thoughts just drifting away. Um, and this sense that streams and clouds aren't really trying to get anywhere. Um, they're, they're, they're just moving based on their own karma, which is a lot different than my karma. Their karma is rather than kind of their choices and the factors coming into the, their birth. I guess a cloud's karma is like wind directions and stuff um, and whatever causes that. But they're just kind of, a stream's just going where it's going. Um, and then kind of returning to him, he says, of these mountains, which shall be my home. Um, and all of this is just my interpretation, so I don't know if this is what an actual scholar would say, but I just picture him then kind of comparing himself to these streams and rivers and standing somewhere looking at these mountains and just being like, eh, where am I going to go? I don't know. Uh, just this sense of kind of just look at, look at these mountains. Where am I, where am I going to go? He doesn't know where he's going to go. Um, and... Like, just, like the, just like a river is flowing, but the river and the cloud doesn't know where, it doesn't have a plan on where it's headed. Um, and so I've, I've thought of that a lot then. And I think, so I want to read that one more time. Um, Unfettered at last, a traveling monk, I pass the old Zen barrier. Mine is a traceless stream and cloud life of these mountains which shall be my home. And... Yeah, so this is a very Zen idea then. Um, and it's also the complete opposite of all of the other things that I was talking about before. So all of the modern life questions of who am I and what am I going to do and then what's my job going to be and like how am I going to write my CV so that everyone thinks I'm a really good scientist and then, and then how am I going to pay for things and how am I... So there's all of these sorts of questions really, um, that people spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, and I, do, I don't feel like I, that, when I'm doing that, I don't necessarily feel um, like I'm living a traceless stream and cloud Zen life. Um, although, I mean, I think, I, I think it could be argued that, you know, maybe on a deeper level I am. Um, but... Yeah, so this is kind of this common thing that we're always talking about in our, in our practice. And so um, it, I, I return then to this, and this is something that I've read. This is at least the third time that I've read this part um, in, a, in a Dharma talk, because it just comes to my mind so much, I think, just with my personal practice and the way that I, what ideas tend to be kind of that stick with me. Um, I keep coming back to this spot in this book. Um, this is The Heart of Buddhist Teaching by Thich Nhat Hanh. It's just a really nice kind of introductory, really accessible. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of like nice read it before bedtime Buddhist book. It's not too heavy, um, but still gets into a lot of good ideas. And he's talking about in this book, um, there's a lot of lists and the chapters are named after a lot of these lists that Zen has, like the 12 links of codependent arising, the four noble truths, the, there's always the four this, the, the six paramitas. The, um, and so the chapters are kind of organized in that way. And so here is a uh, chapter called The Three Doors of Liberation. Um, 
It says the three Dharma seals are the keys we can use to enter the three doors of liberation. And the three doors are emptiness, uh, signlessness, and aimlessness. When we enter these doors, we dwell in concentration and are liberated from fear, confusion, and sadness. And then he goes into explaining the three doors of liberation. But the one that really keeps coming back to me over and over and over in my practice that I think about actually a lot um, is his description of the third door of liberation, uh, which is aimlessness. And so I'll, I'll read a little bit what he has to say about that. Uh, the third door of liberation is aimlessness, a pranhita. There is nothing to do, nothing to realize, no program, no agenda. This is the Buddhist teaching about... Actually, I was planning on not reading that um, sentence because word I don't know how to pronounce, which is fine. Um, does the rose have to do something? No. The purpose of a rose is to be a rose. Your purpose is to be yourself. You don't have to run anywhere to become someone else. You are wonderful just as you are. This teaching of the Buddha allows us to enjoy ourselves, the blue sky, and everything that is refreshing and healing in the present moment. There's no need to put anything in front of us and run after it. We already have everything we are looking for, everything we want to become. We are already a Buddha, so why not just take the hand of another Buddha and practice walking meditation? Be yourself. Life is precious as it is. All the elements for your happiness are already here. There is no need to run, strive, search, or struggle. Just be. Just being in the moment in this place is the deepest practice of meditation. Most people cannot believe that just walking as though you have nowhere to go is enough. They think that striving and competing are normal and necessary. Try practicing aimlessness for just five minutes and see how happy you are during those five minutes. Um, and he goes on to say more about that, but I think that captures kind of the essence of what he's trying to say about aimlessness. Particularly this idea of nowhere to go, nothing to do, um, is something that comes back to me a lot. And I've heard even at times, Mado will kind of give s small bits of meditation instruction while people are sitting. Um, and I remember the first or second time I came to the Zendo, um, one of the things she had said was this same idea of take your seat, you have, you have nowhere to go, you have nothing to do, this time is set aside for this practice. Um, and it really has been helpful for me in my own meditation because think, and I almost kind of use that as a mantra sometimes when my mind is all over the place, just I'm telling myself like nowhere to go, nothing to do. Um, and it really kind of reminds me that whatever, any thoughts that come up in meditation um, don't really need to be dealt with right now. Um, and that works sometimes. Um, but yeah, so I think that that's that. That's really where I kind of go to thinking about then this sort of stuff, thinking about these general things that I keep running into these questions over and over and over. The aimlessness um, just kind of challenges me to look at that in a very different light. Um, and I said I always kind of go back and forth on a conflict and then don't really um, land anywhere. Because of course, and so to do that, um, of course, you know, I do have places to go. Um, and I got, I got things to do, and um, in a way. So 
yeah, so there's that kind of classic Zen um, contradiction there. Um, and so I think that then, in this terms, my practice is a lot about kind of finding that aimlessness even when I have these aims, uh, which is a lot more challenging than the way it sounds when it can kind of, you know, just reading about how everything is so perfect in the moment and all the components for my happiness are there. There's no need for striving. I don't need to be anything other than who I am. And it's, and yeah, so it's like, so while I do know that, and I do believe that, I really do, um, that does, that's not always enough to actually make me feel better. Uh, not that even feeling better is the purpose, but it's just not, I hear that and sometimes I'm like, well, great, but like, I still have to wake up early and go to the lab and then do this work and then write this thing and then, you know, oh great, um, the dog threw up or oh great, like, you know, so there's, there's, there's a million things I have to do. And um, yeah, so I guess then in my own practice, then my focus on this is more about just this kind of idea of rather than distinguishing kind of sacred and mundane, kind of making these separations between absolute and relative truth, um, the awareness needed really to see where relative truth fits into absolute truth. Um, and that's a topic that I have a lot less to say about. Um, but, yeah, with that said, um, I think that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. <laughs>